Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It is certainly great to be back on the air. And I must say that it's great to be back on the air because I have great news to report. That great news has to do with the fact that we are now going to be embarking on a new book topic series discussion. So where exactly do we go from this point forward, given in the most uh, recent uh, podcast book topic series discussion we were in the uh, 20th century, the early part of the 20th century, but it never hurts to uh, shift gears where sometimes we go a couple steps backwards and venture into either the century before or perhaps a century or two earlier. After all, isn't it fair to say that um, America's history really uh, begins in the early uh, 17th century, the first decade of the 17th century when uh, the English set foot in uh, what we now know as present-day uh, Jamestown, Virginia. That's not to say that um, that the English had uh, attempted other uh, settlements in the New World prior to the 17th century, but they had not met um, with results as originally uh, expected. But nonetheless, it is fair to say that our time machine can take us in a variety of uh, different uh, directions, given that uh, my primary focus is not only just on colonial history, but that of uh, the present day as well. Present day necessarily doesn't have to mean like right at this moment, but present in a sense of uh, events that might have taken place within uh, the last, um, you know, 10, 15 years. But the bottom line is that uh, no matter where our time machine has taken us since I began uh, first podcasting uh, to all of you, we have covered a slew of great uh, topics and the results have uh, been significant. But I do thank all of you for being such ardent listeners and helping me um, attain results that I personally didn't believe could happen, but they have happened But I also thank you all for making the impossible become all the more possible. Believe it or not, uh, we will be embarking on our uh, 27th season. 27 seasons. And, you know, here I've been podcasting since June of 2020. You know, there's no shortage in sight. No matter what I've read and what I feel does need to be discussed, the bottom line is that um, once I know I get going, there's no end in sight. And the bottom line is that I have listeners like you all who have uh, stepped up to the plate and not only have listened to what's relevant, but also being able to share with those who don't know anything about Anchor Podcast and all that it has to offer. Those connections there, to me, are significant. So thank you again to all of you, my fellow uh, listeners. So I'm sure all of you are beginning to wonder, where do we go from this point uh, forward? Well, I will have to say that we are going to be going back uh, to the American Revolution. I know many of you are probably saying, now, Kirk, we have talked about um, a handful of uh, stuff regarding the American Revolution, not just some battles, but leaders What else is there to talk about involving the American Revolution that hasn't been addressed? Well, I'm glad you all ask, because just when we think we've learned everything there is about a particular um, topic, such as the American Revolution, we ought to be reminded that there are constantly new um, discoveries that we can learn about that will make us um, even um, even more appreciative of what we um take based upon new um, findings per our learnings and um, and, and uh, take them into new uh, settings. So uh, not too long ago, I read a book uh, pertaining to the American Revolution. And after having read this, this particular book, I decided that somewhere down the road, it would be worth um, presenting in a, a book topic uh, podcast series to you all, my fellow 101 listeners. Well, Like with all other uh, topics, we do have to start with an introduction, or rather I should say a a prologue. So how about we get going with our prologue 
and as we near the end of the prologue, I will reveal to you all the official title of our new book topic uh, podcast uh, series discussion, uh, given that it's uh, American Revolutionary War related. But regardless of the topic discussion, my my one of my priorities would be to tell you all the exact um, book title of what we're um, going to be uh, learning about. Because if I didn't, then what would be the point in wanting to go forward with um, with any particular series? So here we go with our um, with our prologue, and um, let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go, folks. It's often fair to say. Whenever people study American Revolutionary War history, their focus centers around battles that were land-fought. In other words, they were fought on land. From the moment first shots got fired, or rather that famous phrase by Ralph Waldo Emerson, shots heard round the world, at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, April 19, 1775, to Yorktown, Virginia, where British General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered his forces to General George Washington come October the 19th of 1781. While land-fought battles throughout the Revolutionary War's eight-year conflict from 1775 to 1783, and let's always keep in mind, folks, that while, yes, uh, British General Lord Charles Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered to um, General Washington on, on October 19th of 1781 at Yorktown, Virginia, we must remember that the uh, Revolutionary War itself did not officially end at Yorktown. We still had uh, some conflicts taking place, uh, most notably that one we learned about uh, not too long ago in terms of a book topic a series discussion being uh, Utah Springs down in South Carolina, which was the uh, Southern Campaign's uh, final battle. Matter of fact, that battle ended uh, before, well before the uh, siege of Yorktown came to an official end. So, therefore, always keep in mind that uh, that the war itself did not officially end until 1783, when the um, Treaty of Paris uh, was signed was signed in July of 1783. So, yes, while land. Uh, while battles that were land fought um, throughout the Revolutionary War's eight-year conflict did test uh, George Washington's ragtag Continental Army in times of despair, triumph, to near collapse. Of course, when I think of uh, the Continental Army on the verge of collapsing, the first thing that automatically comes to my mind is um, in the aftermath of the um, New York debacle, where the army is on the run, desertions were rampant, um, Washington was down to maybe 2,500 men at, at most, but even uh, most likely less than 2,500. Many of his uh, soldiers are, are not only deserting over to the side of the British, they're giving up. They don't see any more uh, hope in this cause. But of course, all of that changed um, with the uh, miracle at Trenton on uh, Christmas night of of uh, December 25th, 1776. So that was a, a situation where the Continental Army was facing a, a situation of near collapse, and Washington's mission was very simple, victory or death. And in the end, Washington's army prevailed. They captured over 900 uh, Hessian soldiers. And in the aftermath of that victory, morale was restored, uh, the flames were lit a little bit uh, stronger to where the cause for independence um, had better signs of hope than it did uh, in previous months following the uh, New York um, campaign debacle. But another element behind America's uh, war for independence, uh, even to this day, has remained largely forgotten. What missing element could there possibly be that has remained uh, forgotten? Well, that missing element that has been forgotten, it has been talked about, but, but it has been forgotten. So, to answer your all's question, here we go. The missing element which helped contribute to America's victory behind achieving independence during her eight-year 
battle, or let alone, I should say, a war against England, the mother country, came about along the waterways. Okay, now we're getting into uh, something that has, that will um, have relevance. While America had a navy for part of the Revolutionary War, America's navy uh, wasn't uh, full-scale, meaning her overall size per total ship count never peaked or exceeded anywhere over 100 vessels. We might be surprised to learn at some point um, in a future podcast segment down the road exactly just how many ships were in existence given just how young America's Navy was in the midst of war against the world's most formidable foe, not just by land, but by sea. So, five years after shots were heard round the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, having taken place, a fellow American captain named Jonathan Harridan and I don't believe many of you all would know who uh, Captain Jonathan Harridan was, and that's okay. I didn't know anything about this fella until I uh, read the book that we will be uh, now doing the uh, current uh, podcast book topic series on. But uh, Captain Jonathan Harridan is one of those individuals. It is fair to say that he is a um, he's an average Joe person. Uh, he didn't come from uh, a well-to-do family, and that's okay. It might be fair to say that he came from a um, from an average uh, middling family, who uh, perhaps more than likely uh, was making no more than twelve pounds a year in uh, yearly uh, income. And the only reason I say 12 pounds is because I learned a handful of times at uh, Colonial Williamsburg, including Yorktown, where the average middling family, what we think of as middle class family, in today's modern terms, the average middling family was making no more than uh, roughly 12 pounds a year in uh, annual uh, income. So anyways, this uh, fellow American uh, captain named Jonathan Harridan, he commanded... Um, a vessel known as the Pickering. And we'll learn here shortly how long he had been uh, commanding the vessel, the Pickering. But it turns out that uh, Jonathan Harridan um, was not anywhere along American waters. But while uh, commanding the Pickering, he spent a great deal of time um, in the welcoming port city of Bilbao, Spain, or Bilbao. Um, I don't know my Spanish, uh, folks, so uh, you got to forgive me there. But uh, nonetheless, Captain uh, Harridan and his crew aboard the Pickering spent many of um, occasions at the port city of Bilbao, Spain, where his vessel was expecting to sell goods to resupplying. Okay, so... It's one thing to go into port and um, either pick up goods or sell goods, but why not resupply as well? Because it's one thing to go 3,000 miles across the ocean, but you need to be able to resupply going 3,000 miles back when that time comes. Not just short-term, but long-term. You know, not to get off track or anything, but many people forget... And I remind myself of this uh, quite um, often that when the English came to what we now know as present-day uh, Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, their um, route was not a straight shot across the Atlantic Ocean. As a matter of fact, they were stuck in, in a place called the Downs. And the only reason I know this is because um, they were stuck in the Downs because they had, for about four or six weeks in early 1607, and this was due to not being able to get favorable winds. We also have to remind ourselves, too, folks, that, you know, we didn't have uh, modern-day um, key ignitions where we just start the start the ship and get the engines all revved up, and, and, and then once they've uh, gotten revved up to uh, where they need to be, we can, um, we can sound the horn and say, all aboard, and <laughs> back up, and 
get ready to go out on our destination. That's not the way it worked in the 17th century. Uh, ships, up until uh, the early 19th century, had to rely upon the winds. Favorable winds, that is, to get them going to where they needed to go. So in the end, after getting the favorable winds uh, for the uh, English in 1607, they their course uh, took them on a southwesterly route to where they would uh, go, where they went about going into the uh, Canary Islands, not only into the Canary Islands, but they made their way into the Caribbean, where they resupplied on a, on essential um, provisions, and then went northward, where they ultimately um, let, sailed into the heart of the uh, Chesapeake Bay. So always keep in mind that when... Um, in colonial days, that whenever um, explorers or let alone uh, captains and their crew were uh, sailing along the waters, especially in, Euro in European um, outlets, not only were they selling goods, but they were resupplying. Not just resupplying for their journey back home, but perhaps bringing back goods to uh, port cities that were dependent upon uh, goods to sell to those um, in in town who uh, could afford to buy goods that certain goods I should say that perhaps the average um, person of the time could not afford to buy. Take for example sugar. Very few people actually had sugar. Sugar was something that only the wealthy could attain. Uh, we must keep in mind that not everyone had access to uh, certain kinds of um, products that we often take for granted in today's world. So come June the 3rd of uh, 1780, um, a challenge um, made itself formidable to uh, Captain Harridan, given he spotted through means of spyglass a British ship, or let alone a privateer ship, that was uh, known as the Achilles. Whereas... Captain Jonathan Harridan's Pickering had a crew of 38 men, including 16 six-pounder can cannons. The Achilles had a crew of 138. So if the Achilles has a crew of 138, I'm led to believe that this ship is not only bigger in size than uh, Jonathan Harridan's Pickering, but would it be fair to say that the Achilles also has a, a variety of different cannons? Yes, and the and the most important thing we must keep in mind is that, for example, with uh, Jonathan Harridan's uh, Pickering, given they were 16 six-pounder cannons, whenever you hear the term pounder, that refers to the following. It refers to the weight of solid shot fired by the cannon itself. So, if you have... Um, 16 six-pounder six pounder cannons, that means that the cannons you have are equipped to fire cannonballs that weigh six pounds. In other words, not every ship is going to be equipped with, uh, tw with um, pounders um, suited to fire 24-pound uh, cannonballs. So, Here's the, here's the bigger uh, catch. Captain um, Harridan had, um, a couple days before uh, June the 3rd of um, 1780, he had uh, succeeded in uh, defeating an enemy uh, ship called the Golden Eagle and did take um, her, her um, crew. Ten or twelve of those uh, crew people actually joined along with uh, Captain uh, Harridan and his crew in fighting against um, the Achilles along the uh, waters. One thing we will learn here um, shortly, but I'll just point it out now. Captain Harridan's crew, yes, one could say is at a disadvantage, given that he's not only has a crew of just 38 men, but 16 six-pounder cannons. The Achilles, with a crew of 138 and a variety of different size cannons. What does it tell us about Captain Harridan? He's not afraid to take on a fight, no matter how big the obstacles may be. It's fair to say that Jonathan Harridan had some formal experience along the waters, or I should say oceans, seas, prior to shots fired round the world on April the 19th, 1775. 
Given as a young fellow, he got sent to Salem, which is north of Boston, near uh, Marblehead. And while in Salem, he got apprenticed as a cooper under the tutelage, or rather I should say guidance, of Joseph Cabot, whom was a well-to-do merchant. And I have no doubts that Mr. Joseph Cabot um, came in um, frequent contact with uh, Mr. John Hancock, who just so happened to be one of the richest merchants, uh, given that um, he became one of the richest merchants as a result of inheriting his uh, uncle's uh, fortunes. Uh, his uncle died um, a few years after George III um, was officially coronated, and right around the time when the French and Indian War, or that infamous Seven Years' War, ended. But when John Hancock's uncle died, John Hancock inherited one of the biggest um, fortunes in terms of a merchant business, and all of this inheritance happened before he even reached the age of 30. So I have no doubts in my mind that Joseph Cabot, whom um, Jonathan Harridan was apprenticed under, had uh, connections with uh, John Hancock. By June of 1776, Jonathan Harridan earned the rank of first lieutenant aboard a sloop. And for those of you who aren't sure what a sloop is, I'll tell you right here. A sloop is a sailboat with a single mast having one head sail in the front of the mast and the main sail from uh, the back. Jonathan Harridan in June of 1776, given that he attained the rank of first lieutenant, uh, went on to uh, be part of a, a ship called the, uh, or a sloop called the uh, Tyrannicide. It was sponsored by Massachusetts as part of a broad colonial Navy project whose mission sought to protect American merchantmen along the waters, that is, uh, from a handful of things. And when I think of uh, protecting American merchantmen, how about protecting them from being impressed by the enemy? And I'm sure some of you are thinking, what in the world do you mean by impressed, Kirk? Well, I'm not talking about impressing the enemy in terms of what you have uh, strength-wise. When someone gets impressed, and we're talking opposite of impressment, let's actually th take impressment instead of impressed. Impressment is when one, um, one force is seizing or forcing a group of people on the opposing side, they are being forced against their own will to fight for the uh, enemy and for various reasons. And of course, when I think of impressment, um, I often think of the War of 1812, not to get off subject, but that's where I first learned about impressment and how uh, British um, ships and their uh, commanders would uh, seize American ships along the waters of the Atlantic Ocean come aboard their ships without any means of probable cause, capture American sailors, force them onto British ships where they were really, in a sense, never heard from again. It was really, in a sense, a means of intimidation along the high waters. So, yes, uh, for uh, the state of Massachusetts, uh, that state is taking the lead in um, trying to find measures to, to help better protect American merchantmen along the waters. And not just protect the merchantmen, but how about pursuing uh, strategies that result in capturing enemy vessels being British ships. Although Lieutenant Harridan succeeded to where he later became captain of the Tyrannicide, issues involving terms over pay forced him to step down from the Massachusetts Navy and pursue becoming a privateersman, which took place officially on September 30th, 1778, when taking, when taking over at the helm of the Pickering. The Pickering was only just one of over a thousand American privateer vessels, and Jonathan Harridan went on to become one of the many thousands whom held the status as being a privateersman during the Revolutionary War. Now, I'm sure some of you might already know what a privateersman is or what privateering is all about, but I bet there are a handful of you out there who may not know what that terminology is. And if you don't, don't feel ashamed by it. Um, 
but I'm here to tell you all exactly what privateers and privateersmen are. So this way there can be a, a reduction in confusion. So to avoid that confusion, uh, let's find out about privateers. Privateers were any or all armed vessels owned and provided by private individuals. Okay, so think about this, folks. Privateers are um, arm or vessels. They are owned not by the government, but by private individuals, those whom aren't uh, directly affiliated with the government. But how are they allowed to be able to retain their vessels so that they don't get into any kind of um, trouble with the law? Well, in order to avoid getting into trouble with the law and be able to retain your rights as a privateersman, those individuals had to obtain formal permission from the government. And, and by obtaining formal permission from the government, they were um, rewarded in return for having um, proper rights and going about capturing enemy ships during times of war. But this formal permission, though, had to come about per a letter of marquee. Marquee spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E. What exactly is a letter of marquee? It sounds rather formal, and it is formal. It's a proper legal document authorized by the government allowing any person or persons to go about capturing vessels belonging to hostile nations. And at the height of the revolution, even before shots were fired around the world, even as we get into the early 1770s, right after the infamous Boston Massacre, privateering is um, is uh, showing its um, it, it's showing its face. It's making its name in terms of um, in terms of individuals and crews not backing down from a fight, and because they're not backing down from a fight, they already know firsthand who their enemy is. England, the mother country. Besides uh, capturing vessels belonging to hostile nations like England, how about um, not only capturing these enemy vessels, but how about having ownership of enemy vessels? And not just ownership of the vessels in terms of the outside. How about the possessions, or let alone cargoes and prizes, that are on the inside, most notably in times of war. Now, I must point out that um, it's one thing. It was one thing for a crew to um, seize ownership of an enemy vessel and not only attain possessions of what was inside those enemy vessels, but all proceeds were to be split amongst the men whom operated the vessels including the rightful owners. So it might be fair to say that there, there was no such thing as 90-10. In other words, it would be fair to say that, not, that it would not have been right for 90% of all proceeds to be placed in the hands of the owners, while the other 10% had to be equally divided out amongst the crew based upon how many crewmen uh, were aboard um, a privateer uh, vessel. So, yes, all proceeds were to be split amongst the men whom operated the vessels, including the rightful owners. To me, that was a, um, a uh, proper uh, compromise in order to ensure that this uh, system is not only profitable, but one where everybody involved benefits short and long term. Considering America's uh, Navy lacked superiority and respect, and what I mean by lacking respect... <laughs> The British aren't going to respect our Navy. They have the world's largest formidable Navy. They've got probably at best 300, 500 more ships than we could attain um, even before war's end. I'm just throwing out some numbers, but I'm just giving you all a, a good uh, base of what, of what um, our young nation would have been going up against when you consider... Uh, Britain not only being the most powerful nation in the world, but she's also the most powerful um, 
military nation as well, both by land and sea. So considering that America's Navy lacked superiority and respect, Congress had to go a different route. That is the Continental Congress, by the way. But this different route involved um, turning to uh, state and um, colony uh, leadership through an initiative involving uh, privateering. So in other words, the states were the ones, you know, having to uh, build ships. Yes, the Continental Congress, you know, did oversee uh, that funding went towards building uh, Navy ships, but the states seemed to have a better advantage. But at the same time, this it's fair to say that this was like a public-private partnership project. The states were doing their thing, but yet those whom wanted to um, own an armed vessel had to obtain formal, formal permission from the federal government, or what we call from the Continental Congress at that time. And once that permission was obtained through a letter of marquee, then um, the government uh, authorized uh, full um, use in um, overseeing that the operations would go through. Now, privateers came in uh, different forms. Some were ships so big that large crews had to be required as multiple functions per each man aboard couldn't go unfulfilled. Yes, yeah, so if you have a crew of over 100 people, over 100 men, for example, yeah, it is very fair to say that um, a good number of those men, if not all of them, based upon their uh, their positions, would be asked to perform more than just one um, task. Now, for the um, vessels that were much bigger, in terms of uh, privateers, their primary uh, purposes aimed at seeking out to capturing enemy ships. In other words, they needed to uh, to detect anything that would be seen as a threat, and if it was a threat, necessary action needed to be uh, carried out in order to prevent um, large-scale um, loss of uh, life. Other privateers focused their energies on trade, where these vessels went from ports, kind of like the Pickering, within a certain radius to buy and sell goods. However, it's one thing for these other privateers to uh, focus on trade in terms of going from uh, ports within, um, within a specific radius, but don't they need to um, have protection? Sure. So by, um, by uh, requesting a letter of marquee and having it be approved, these um, other privateer uh, vessels who focused on trade also had per permission to attack enemy ships when it became appropriate and necessary in doing so. As captain of the Pickering from the fall of 1778 to early 1780, Jonathan Harridan was no stranger when it came to taking multiple prizes. In October of 1779, around Sandy Hook, New Jersey, located near or around the Jersey Shore, Captain Harridan spotted three British privateers consisting of 14, 10, and 8 cannons to where he engaged the enemy, despite some opposition from within. Interesting, he had opposition from within, but maybe there was a reason for it. Maybe some of these people thought that uh, Captain Harridan might have been playing with fire. Well, I don't think the guy was playing with fire. And I can prove you all right. I can prove it to you all right here. Here we go. So, after one and a half hours of fighting, Pickering, the vessel Pickering, emerged victorious, where all three British ships got captured. After one and a half hours of fighting, folks, Achieving victory in under two hours was attributed to how Captain Harridan engaged the enemy, not only at Sandy Hook, New Jersey, but overall. Because as one crewman said of him, and this is in quotations, folks, go alongside and do what was to be done in a short time. In other words, and this is how I interpreted it, Captain Harridan was an officer whom didn't back down from any challenge, regardless of size, but chose to go forward and take on the improbable, where all things impossible could still be attained, 
even if it meant reinventing existing strategies and turning them into something more sophisticated where victory itself still stood a chance. And uh, for those of you who are wondering about his encounter with that um, large ship along the uh, port city of Bilbao, Spain, it was the Achilles. It had a crew of 138 and had a multitude of different size um, pounders. Captain Harridan and his crew prevailed. They defeated that ship. That might be a good example right there of David slewing Goliath, given that Captain Harridan only had a crew of 38 and... Uh, the um, Achilles had a crew of um, 138. 100 man difference, and yet the ship that had the smallest number still prevailed. So it just goes to show you that, that the American Revolutionary War did produce its uh, share of uh, David's uh, slewing Goliaths. Not just in one battle, but at different times of the war where the uh, flame for independence still remained afloat, even um, in the most. Uh, perilous or trying of times. Throughout his duration within the Massachusetts Navy, including time as a privateer on many ships, Jonathan Harridan secured scores of prizes to, to bringing back hundreds of British cannons as well as prisoners. Sadly, uh, Jonathan Harridan died on November 23, 1803, at the age of 59. To us in today's world, that seems rather young. But it, in uh, the early 19th century, to live to be close to 60, I guess that might be considered old age. He was the victim of uh, consumption, or back then that they called it uh, tuberculosis. But after his passing, many began to uh, place him up there with other such formidable leaders in the early days of America's Navy, most notably uh, John Paul Jones, who went on to become the founder of the American Navy. American uh, privateersmen uh, went above and beyond in taking the maritime fight against the British and made them pay, resulting with insurance rates Yes, and there were there was such a thing as insurance back in the 18th century, folks. Insurance isn't anything new, but because uh, American privateersmen went to extreme lengths in taking the uh, maritime fight against the British and making them pay, one factor that um, definitely um, saw its uh, presence be known had to do with insurance rates, which did drastically rise. Um, and also, too, not only do the British see um, insurance rates drastically rise, how about when, for all British um, ships that are captured, how about rerouting their essential resources, including naval assets, a.k.a. money, where American vessels got assured broader protections, which over time helped contribute to Britain's most formidable foe being that of France. And yes, when I think of France entering the stage onto the stage during the American Revolutionary War, I'm always reminded of the Battle of uh, Saratoga between September and October of 1777 when um, that infamous general who uh, snubbed Benedict Arnold, uh, Horatio Gates, and to the eyes of those who served under him, he was nicknamed Granny Gates. But Horatio Gates nonetheless defeated British General John Burgoyne and prevented uh, the British Army from, um, from uh, splitting the Continental Army into two. So as a result of Saratoga, Benjamin Franklin was finally able to persuade the French to come onto the side of the Americans. It wasn't so much the victory at Saratoga, but how about these uh, battles, not just so much battles along the water, but acts of privateering, disrupting Britain's uh, means of uh, getting her um, resources to the proper chain of command and assets, money that can be um, used for uh, further funding. Now that those assets and um, resources have been captured by uh, privateers. 
what it means is that uh, Britain's going to um, not be able to achieve that ultimate objective, being the slam dunk victory and ending this war altogether to where her subjects, being the 13 colonies, would return to the uh, proper submission of the crown, King George III, and that of Parliament. So, on land, privateering also produced results that greatly benefited America's uh, campaign for independence. Well, how could privateering uh, improve um, matters on land? Well, domestically, privateering yielded goods to military supplies, which America faced unprecedented shortages of. And when I think of of shortages, I'm often thinking of you know that that catch-on phrase, uh, laws of supply and demand, or supply and demand. You know, for example, prior to our declaring separation from England, where do you think we were getting our shoes? The majority of shoes that men, women, and children wore in colonial America came from England. You know, take for example, London, England. You might, I'm not, I can't, I don't know if I can give you the exact number, but it's probably fair to say that, um, that there probably were at least 10, 15 million people living in London. I could be wrong, but it's a, it's a much bigger number than, say, Williamsburg, Virginia, because the uh, average population in Williamsburg, Virginia was right at about 1,500, and it only doubled or tripled when the uh, House of Burgesses was in session. But the bottom line is that when you have a city like London that has 5 to 10 million people, you are going to have a greater need for 10 to 20 shoe shops which can employ hundreds of uh, people per shop who can perform a handful of tasks like we think of as a modern-day assembly line. And because of that large population, there's going to be a greater demand to have people on site to be able to produce the vast uh, goods and ship them um, across the ocean 3,000 miles via uh, means of importing goods. So... Because think about it, folks. Here in America, most people don't have access to um, good quality leather. So it was one thing to uh, to declare your independence from England, but what are you giving up? You're giving up so many things in terms of uh, products, like leather, textiles, things that we just can't um, really attain much of in America, but yet oh, 3,000 miles across the ocean... There are better um, means in terms of uh, greater abundance of resources to uh, go about producing um, goods like uh, leather shoes on a mass scale. So, in terms of um, in terms of what you may call it, the um, supplies that were facing uh, unprecedented shortages. Uh, to sum it up, brief economic 101 terminology. You have. Um, you're in need of a large supply of, uh, there's a great demand of, uh, of needing leather shoes, but yet there's not enough, uh, enough supply. That is enough resources to go about fulfilling people's, uh, demands for, um, for shoes. And of course the Continental Army said that, you know, each soldier would get probably at least two pairs of shoes. Most soldiers were lucky early on if they were getting one pair of shoes. So that's just keep that in mind. Uh, it's one thing to, to declare your independence, but remember what you're giving up from an economic standpoint. I, I should also point out about um, the securing of cash provisions. By obtaining uh, cash provisions, a.k.a. financial assets, that enabled um, the Continental Congress to go about uh, funding the war um, long term. Yes, there were a few of our forefathers who had the means to uh, fund uh, the war through uh, personal fortunes, but not everyone had that kind of um, money in doing so. Although the official number of privateers, or let alone vessels, and privateersmen whom uh, were on those vessels, uh, given their uh, participation throughout the Revolutionary War, that still remains unknown. But it is fair to say without fail that they both played pivotal roles in securing America's independence from England.
However, the most reliable source pertaining to basic information regarding uh, privateering during the Revolutionary War comes from the Library of Congress's Naval Records of the American Revolution, which documents 1,697 armed vessels receiving letters of marquee from the Continental Congress. As solid as the Library of Congress's naval records may be, the overall count hovering around 1,697 vessels is only a rough estimate, a playing field. Some sources say the exact number was much lower, but regardless of the findings, privateering existed, and its results proved decisive in defeating the world's most powerful naval force. We should be reminded, too, folks, that not all 13 colonies saw even numbers when it came to having a general presence of privateers. Massachusetts led the way by launching 600, followed by Pennsylvania's 500. 200 were each launched by Connecticut and Maryland, with Rhode Island launching 150. Virginia and New Hampshire produced right around roughly 100 apiece, whereas North Carolina and New Jersey only had a select few. South Carolina and New York, believe it or not, folks, sent out only one privateer, and this was largely in part because these two colonies had been under temporary British control up until 1783 when the war itself came to an official end. And as for Georgia and Delaware, neither one of those two colonies owned any privateers. Privateering, ironically, had existed well before Europeans established settlements in the New World. And I didn't know this, folks, so hey, it's, uh, it's never a bad thing. Historians know for a fact that the first recorded act of privateering, listen carefully to this one, this will really knock your socks off, Historians know for a fact that the first recorded act of privateering took place in 1243. That's roughly five and a half centuries, folks, before the, before the first shots heard around the world happened at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts on April the 19th of 1775. So the first recorded act of privateering, given that it took place in 1243, that was during Europe's Middle Age um, era. And it happened during the rule of British King Henry III. Of course, when I think of a British king named Henry, Henry VIII is the one that always comes to my mind with the uh, Protestant Reformation. So as Europe moved onward from medieval times into the Renaissance and Age of Exploration eras, privateering grew to where it became a fixed norm when wars themselves involving powers like England, France, and Spain took center stage, all in the name over battling for total supremacy along the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Our new uh, podcast topic study will include learning about well-known Americans of their time, from John Adams, Elbridge Gerry, Thomas Jefferson, John Hancock, to name a few, but also learning about unknown privateersmen whom played key roles such as Ophan Boardman, James Fortin, to Andrew Sherburn. It's one thing to celebrate and remember the triumphs which contributed in America securing her political independence from England. We must also be reminded of countless sacrifices made by those who survived and died, fighting not only for their freedoms, but to, ins but to ensure that the freedoms being secured would remain intact where future generations could live in a nation under non-tyrannical rule. Triumphs are important, and yes, they will be talked about in this uh, new series, but we must learn the failures, including how British forces at times did manage to get the upper hand, and the most forgotten of stories during the eight-year conflict, prisoners of war both in England and New York's Wallabout Bay, which consisted of many captives that were one-time privateersmen. Yes, uh, the newly, the newly um, created United States, based upon what our uh, forefathers uh, 
presented when renouncing their um, allegiance to the crown, being England, this idea behind establishing a United States was an infant idea. It was very infant even to many of her own fellow peoples from within. But for every privateersman whom answered the call of duty, the idea behind a new nation evolving grew, and because of their sacrifices, this reality was made all the more possible. Well, folks, our new um, book topic series is titled the following, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. And, I th and if I'm not mistaken, I do recall... Um, sharing with you all it was uh, last year it was in the spring of last year we uh, talked about another of uh, eric j dolan's books it was called brilliant beacons a history of the american lighthouse well i welcome uh, bringing uh, mr uh, dolan back into the um, spotlight he is a great author he's written uh, many books as a matter of fact he's a resident of uh, nantucket island up in uh, massachusetts's uh, cape cod region so we have a lot of stuff to look forward to, and I uh, look forward to sharing with you all what I learned and having read this book a few months back. And when I'm on the air again next, our, um, we're going to be discussing Massachusetts. Isn't it fair to say that Massachusetts was the hotbed for uh, starting all this um, evolution behind uh, political independence from England? Absolutely. So in our uh, next uh, podcast segment, we will uh, learn about what is about uh, the following, which is titled Massachusetts First. Well, thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to uh, being back on the air again, like I always do with all of you, my uh, faithful 101 um, podcast listeners. You all do a phenomenal job. I know I say that a lot, but I like saying it because I'm very appreciative of all of you whom have taken the time to listen to what I have to share and continue to get the word out to those whom would like to um, learn more through uh, podcasting and perhaps even do podcasts themselves. Take care for now. Wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe.